All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Again, we thank you that even when things don't go the way we planned and things are kind of up in the air, we thank you that that's never the way that it is with you. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And your word is always the same. And its truths are always the same. It doesn't matter how the society or culture around us changes and shifts and now has a complete opposite understanding of what right and wrong are and good and evil. We thank you that your word and its truths have never changed. They tell, your word tells us what is the definition of good and what is the definition of evil. Your word tells us what you define as good and what you define as evil. And your word reminds us of your many, many promises of who you are, what you're doing for us, uh, and what you will continue to do in and through us and for us in the future. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we can all tell from looking around ourselves right now, uh, we're not over at the ranch house property right now. We'll be over there next week. Uh, homecoming Sunday uh, will be, uh, is postponed till uh, October 1st uh, over there because, as we all know, the tropical storm Ophelia has been downgraded to a depression and then the sun was peeking through the clouds this morning. But thankfully, we only got rain. And so while uh, a whole washout yesterday and kind of threw our plans for today out the window, it, did, uh, it didn't pose as much of a danger as a full-blown hurricane would have to us if, if we got hit with that. But in this line of thinking about storms and thunder and lightning, I was reminded of something we talked about almost seven years ago. I don't know if anybody else here would remember that, but uh, I, I, we talked about something almost seven years ago that I want to revisit this morning, and that's the record of God coming down upon Mount Sinai in fire, smoke, thunder, lightning, and an earthquake, a literal storm of God's visit to earth. I wonder how many of us myself included, as we've been ch children of God for so long, that we see him as our father, we see him as our savior, we see him as our friend. We have no problem with that. But our awe-filled reverence at his holiness and our lack of it has maybe faded a little. We'll talk about how that part of our relationship with him needs to be rekindled, what that means for us, and how we can better worship him. Uh, because of it and for it. So, if you brought your Bible with you this morning, uh, please turn to Exodus chapter 19, uh, and we're going to be in verses 18 through 25 this morning, and we're going to start in the first couple of verses there with verses 18 through 19. If you didn't bring your Bible, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also turn to Exodus 19. It's the second book in the Bible, uh, or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. But this is what we read. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. 
When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. I wonder how many of us forgot this actually happened. This was an actual historical event. Thousands of years ago, in the southern portion of what is today Saudi Arabia, some scholars posit that this description is merely a description of volcanic activity in the area, and some have even used that theory to try to locate Mount Sinai elsewhere other than the traditional region, like I said, in the uh, Saudi Arabia uh, area. They just cannot grasp that this was an event other than something we can more easily understand. But first of all, this could not just be a description of volcanic activity because it makes no sense whatsoever as to what happened what that led up to this. Moses has been leading two and a half million recently freed slaves from Egypt. And he's been leading them down through the Sinai Peninsula to Mount Sinai. Uh, and, and Moses would not knowingly lead Two and a half million people from all different age ranges and sensitivities and uh, ways of being able to move or not move to a highly dangerous area of volcanic activity. He's not going to do that. Moses wasn't an idiot and wouldn't carelessly lead the Israelites unaware into that environment. Secondly, that this event was not natural and could not be explained in natural means was the whole point of it. Just like the burning bush, God used natural components such as fire, smoke, thunder, lightning, and an earthquake. But the combination of those components, just like fire and a bush, were anything but natural. And that was the entire point. Here we have more description of what happened on what is today modern-day Mount Jubal, and it's a pretty graphic description. First of all, even the description of how God manifested himself was connected to full reverence of him above all other gods, or made up gods in, in reality, and even beyond that, in the spiritual world, demons, who these uh, pagan people groups were actually worshiping. Here and elsewhere in the Old Testament, we read of God coming down to the earth, he did not need a priest to do some magic spell and incantation to call him down. He came of his own volition out of the heavens down to earth. We may miss this in a cursory reading of this passage, but here is what is incredibly important about the way God revealed himself. How does Exodus 19.9 describe how God will reveal himself? We read back in the beginning part of this chapter, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you. One biblical scholar noted the significance of this manifestation. We know from John 1.18 that no one has seen God except for seeing Jesus, the Son of God. That's true. For no one, not even Moses, saw God, they only saw smoke in our description here. This manifestation established two things between God and his people. And that's what the whole focus of this message is going to be on. It established two things between God and his people. His imminence 
and his transcendence. And we're going to talk, those may seem like big words. We're going to talk about what those mean. His imminence means how close he is with man. His transcendence means how far above man he is. These two need to be held in perfect balance. Too much imminence, and people would be too flippant in approaching God, and too much transcendence would mean that he is unknowable, and you couldn't have a relationship with him. Even the coming tabernacle that is going to come after this was designed to balance these two attributes of God. God's presence would be in the tabernacle, thus showing his imminence, but he would be hidden. He'd be hidden behind the, the Holy of Holies, that veil there. And he could only be approached by what? With sacrifice, with blood of a sacrifice, thus showing his transcendence. This revelation of these attributes of God on Mount Sinai should not be missed and must cause us to revere him for his transcendence and greatness outside of this dimension, but also revere him that he chose to come near us in order for us to know him as far as he has revealed himself to us. So what do we have here? God descends in unquenchable fire and billowing thick smoke. The way this is described is this is a type of black, thick smoke that billows out of a high heat fire, like a house or a building. It's instantly asphyxiating. This description as the smoke billowing as it would out of a furnace is referring to a smelting furnace. These would be kilns made out of rock whereby, whereby a very high heat, very high heat fire would be started in order to melt down metals so that you could craft them into weapons. Not only that, but we read that the whole mountain quaked violently. This mountain that sat there, immovable, had such a violent earthquake simply from the presence of God. We can see now how Jesus could say these words, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. The word used here for quaked in our passage this morning means trembled. The mountain didn't just tremble because of the presence of God. It trembled at the presence of God. Even the mountain, which was seen as stationary and unchanging and staunch, trembled at the presence of God like a little kid in debilitating fear. Everything the Israelites knew about the natural world, like the Red Sea experience they had just been through not too long before that, was destroyed before their very eyes. When Moses called to God, he, along with all the rest of the Israelites, was met with crashing thunder. I imagine this was as frightening as when you're in your house and there's a thunderstorm going on and it seems far away and fine and all of a sudden there's that bright flash of lightning and immediately after that, boom, 
a clap of thunder out of nowhere that makes you jump a mile high, right? That happened to me the other day. Boom, out of nowhere. Whoa! (laughs) This was meant to be absolutely frightening. Why? Why did God do this? This experience was meant to be unexplainable, and it was meant to be downright scary. Because God was showing his people two things. Number one, that they shouldn't be messing around with him by complaining, bickering, and calling God's and Moses' authority into question. And two, to show them that that same power would be going before them in conquering the promised land. You might say, well, I don't have a problem with my reverence towards God. And you shouldn't have a problem answering these questions directly related to that. All right, everybody ready? How many times did you complain this week? How many times did you complain today? How many times did you worry this week? How many times did you worry today? How many times were you bitter about something that happened? Maybe in the past, but this past week. How many times were you bitter about something today? There's a quote by the late Pastor Tim Keller that he tweeted several years ago at this point that you may have read before. And he wrote this. Worry is not believing that God will get it right, and bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. Worry is not believing that God will get it right, and bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. I think that pretty much sums up our discontent most of the time, doesn't it? Some of us might say, well, if I saw... What the Israelites saw happening on top of Mount Sinai that day, that wouldn't be a problem anymore in my life. You'd think that. I think we'd all think that. It may not be a blazing fire and billowing black smoke and crashing thunder and blinding lightning, but I think we all have events and experiences in our lives that should be Mount Sinai experiences for us. Things that cannot be explained, miracles even, things that should remind us to never complain against, doubt towards, or have bitterness towards God again. But we forget about those Mount Sinai experiences in our lives. Next, we move on to verses 20 through 22. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. This is a reiteration of the same instruction given in verses 12 through 13. That not one of the people should touch the mountain, even come close to touching the mountain, because it was the sacred place where the Lord would meet them. 
The initial warning was to not go past the border of the foot of the mountain. Now, here is why God, here's what God anticipated as to why the people would possibly want to do that. They were not to go past the border of the mountain because of who would be past the border of the mountain. And God knew that he would not put up with someone who was just fascinated and curious about this manifestation of God. This revelation was not a freak show or circus act, and God would not permit anyone to encounter him in that way. Anyone who would approach him would do so in complete reverence. With two and a half million people, surely there would be one in that group. We, we know humanity. We know, we know people. Surely there be one in that group that would cast aside fear, let his or her curiosity get the better of them, ascend the mountain for the wrong reasons, to make a name for him or herself, to proudly declare that they ascended the mountain and saw God with their very own eyes. That's one of the possibilities that God was preventing here. Rumors of wrong stories of what happened on that mountain. If the warning that anyone who crossed the border should be killed hadn't been given, anyone could have ascended the mountain, gone out of the view of the people below, and made up whatever story they wanted to. And no one could have rebutted them. No one could have said, well, you're a liar, because no one would have known. God would not have flippant, irreverent stories flying around the camp about what so-and-so saw and did with God on that mountain. An easy way to cut that off at the head was to build the punishment of death right into crossing the border. It would be pretty difficult to get anyone to believe your story if you're standing there, if you're not standing there telling it alive, if you're dead, right? God's character, truth, and testimony would remain pure. It would remain pure, so much so, that only the consecrated priests were possibly able to come near to God. Now, who were these priests? And the, and the reason why I ask that is the Levitical priestly order had not been established yet. So who is God talking about here? A couple of theories have been put forth. It could have been that those elders that God had already told Moses to bring with him while Israel was still camped at Rephidim, to go to a certain rock and be the only ones out of those two and a half million people to witness water supernaturally flowing out of that rock, those would then be some of those judges that God would establish over the people. That's a possibility, for they had already, in some respects, would be set apart or consecrated as faithful, diligent, trustworthy people more fit to encounter God. The second theory is that these are the young men, as described later on, again, before the Levitical priestly order is established. We read further on. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Actions that priests would do. 
Now, who were these young men and what made them so special to warrant them making sacrifices to the Lord? It's quite possible that these are the same young men that God told the Israelites to consecrate before even leaving Egypt on the night of Passover as those firstborn children who were spared from the 10th judgment on Egypt during Passover. After all, this is what God tells Moses back in Exodus 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Sanctify to me, consecrate, sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both man and beast, it belongs to me. Whatever the case was, these were not the established Levitical priests, but these were men set apart by God to serve him and set apart enough to be able to be the only ones other than Moses to come near him on the mountain. But here was the problem. Verses 23 and 24. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So why would Moses even mention this? But God, you said nobody was supposed to come up to the mountain. God obviously knew that. He already told, he was the one who told Moses that. Moses did not need to remind him of that. So why does Moses say this in verse 23? Well, knowing what we know about what happened on Mount Sinai, I think these guys were just too scared to go up there, to go up to the mountain. Mm -mm, Not me. You're not getting me to go up on that mountain. (laughs) So Moses knew it. He sees them. And he tries to excuse it away to God by telling him, but I thought you told us that no one was supposed to cross the borders of the mountain. Now we know that these men were scared out of their minds because of Exodus 20.18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled. And stood at a distance. Everybody there, including those young men. Because of their fear and not embracing what God was calling them to do, God issues a new command. We already read that in verse 24. I'm going to read it again. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But now do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. In other words, God says, all right, in that case then, now the priests are now also not allowed to come near me. Only you and Aaron are allowed to experience this once-in-a-lifetime experience. Whereas some of the people may have had a wrong view of God and wanting to run up the mountain, mountain flippantly and in an irreverent way, and that's why he needed to establish that rule that anybody who did that would be killed, these called men had a wrong view of God on the other side of the coin, that of only fearing him and not wanting to have a personal connection with him. 
I wonder how much we miss of God and experiencing God in our lives because we don't revere him as we should and we don't have a rightly balanced view of God. We don't seek to understand the balance between God's imminence and God's transcendence. We either approach him flippantly in prayer not preparing ourselves to have an encounter with him, approaching the throne of grace with boldness, or we don't trust his control and what he does in our lives. There are two extremes in this pendulum swing. We either think of God as a big teddy bear who just exists to please us, and we can just live our lives the way we want to, or that God is somewhere out there and doesn't really care about the intimate details of our lives. Both are extremely misguided, both are, mis are extremely misunderstanding, and both are dangerous ways of thinking about God. Don't forget these verses. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. <laughs> Oftentimes we forget those verses exist in the Bible, don't we? These verses are just one example we read about God's majesty in relation to his creation in Isaiah, too. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers to him, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Lift your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number, and he calls every single one of those stars by name. Think of how many stars there are out there. Stars we don't even know exist yet. And yet God knows them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. He knows everything going on with the stars. Read through, the Psalm, where the book, read through the books of Psalms and Isaiah and breathe in the descriptions of God's surpassing, indescribable power and his greatness and his majesty. There are passages after passages that describe this for us in very vivid detail, too. We only have a chance at all of not being consumed by the holiness of God because he's the one who made a way for us to not be consumed by his holiness. Let us never forget Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, and as we read through the rest of scripture, only the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God considered all of us his enemies. 
fit to be consumed by fire, as we read from that passage in Psalms. If it weren't for his loving rescue of us by the death and resurrection of his son, of him, of him himself, the second person of the Trinity. That's what we deserved, being enemies of God and being consumed by his fire. So like Paul said, we cannot boast in anything except for God's grace upon our lives. It's nothing to do with us or how good we think we are. Our only hope is the grace that God has had upon us through the death and resurrection of his son. That is the only thing we have to boast in and to find any amount of peace in. But at the same time, the author of Hebrews describes that in these last days, God has revealed himself to us in order for us to know him in his son and through his word. He's not just out there completely disconnected from our lives. He is knowable and he is trustworthy. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. Matthew 7, 7 through 8, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. These are not verses that describe a God that's completely out there and completely disconnected to our lives, are they? Not at all. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. We need to have a balanced view of God, both of his power and of his personalness, both of his wrath and have a healthy fear of his discipline in our lives and his righteousness. And a balanced view of that with his relationship with us, bought with the blood of Christ and watching over our lives as our good and perfect father. Both of his fierceness and his faithfulness. Both of his justice and his justification of us. And both of his holiness and of his help in our lives. Only then will we truly revere God as he wants us to revere him. Only then will we truly be able to worship God as much as we can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this graphic description of you coming down upon a mountain to give the law to Moses. But this description that reveals in its very manifestation, how we need to view you. A right balance between your imminence or your closeness to us in our lives and your transcendence. Your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And yet you died for us and you have forgiven us if we've come to you in repentance and you provide for our every need. You give us comfort when we need comfort. You give us peace when we need peace. We thank you for all of who you are. The whole range of who you are. And we thank you that you have opened our spiritual eyes. 
You have given us your salvation through the death and resurrection of your Son. And you have given us your Holy Spirit as a seal for what we have to look forward to for all of eternity. Let us revere you with our lives. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.